One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vritnach, historian and proud reader of trashy novels. Well, mostly trashy anyway. Thank you all for listening. And if you can support the show, the links are in the show notes. You can also find me on Twitter at CensoredPod. If you have any family stories like finding a stash of filthy books in your granny's attic. I want the tea on all your dirty minded relations. So I'm still thinking about censure about how societies ostracise some groups and people. The Irish government might have banned publications, but it didn't have any technical power to ban people. Only Irish society itself could deprive people of the space and opportunity to speak. I'm examining Liam O'Flaherty in this episode because he was certain he was deliberately marginalised by a combination of social forces. He wrote this in 1932. I am censored and abhorred by the illiterate ruffians who control Irish life at present. There is hardly a single newspaper in Ireland that would dare print anything I write. There is hardly a bookshop in Ireland that would dare show my books in its windows. There is hardly a library that would not be suppressed for having my books on its shelves. Outside Dublin, not a single organisation would dare ask me to address them. O'Fueloin was saying here that he wasn't simply a writer of banned books. He was a banned writer. Just for context, he wrote 11 novels and 6 short story collections. But the state only banned 5 novels and 1 memoir. So government censorship alone shouldn't have silenced him completely. I want to explore whether O'Flaherty's complaints were justified. Was he right to say he was shunned? But to do that, I have to read one of his banned books to understand if he was particularly offensive. Maybe his marginalisation happened because he was really rude. So I'm looking at The Martyr from 1933 to see if it was dirty enough to create long-standing offence. My guest today is Teresa Dunn, PhD student from NUIG. She is exploring masculinity in post-independence Ireland through bilingual writers like Liam O'Flaherty. Hi, Teresa. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Aoife. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for suggesting this um, interesting writer and extraordinary book. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to talk about Liam O'Flaherty and especially The Martyr. It's, It's fantastic. Yeah. Yes, so the book we've chosen, because he had a number of books banned, so we've chosen The Martyr, which is a novel about the civil war in Ireland. And it's only the second O'Flaherty novel I've actually read, because like lots of people, I've read The Informer. And to be honest, it's completely different. I was quite staggered by how furious 
He is. He's raging at everybody. He's got diehard Republicans, the Free State, the local priests, the communists, women. I mean, nobody gets away with it in this novel. Can you make any sense of the anger? Is O'Flaherty directing it at some people more than others, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a noticeable shift kind of from his earlier writings um, when he gets banned and all of the subsequent books after that. They're very, very angry uh, compared to his earlier works. And most people will be kind of have only read The Informer. Um, It's his most popular novel. And you get a sense of the kind of some of the graphic violence and the political intrigue in that novel. But you don't get the very very brutal violence that you get in these books and the very angry tone um, kind of starting with The Return of the Brute which was his World War One novel set in the trenches and then House of Gold which was the first book censored in Ireland um, he's just so angry, angry at the priests the politicians the peasants, the publicans uh, I think it comes from his own personal experience as a, a British soldier and a Republican and a communist. He was also an ex-religious man. He went for the priesthood. So it's a very kind of personal hatred, kind of bound up with his own ideologies as well. Yeah. He had quite an interesting biography then, didn't he? He seems to have been an unusual character. Yeah, just kind of shifting between so many different spheres of influence. I think it helps to kind of make the hatred even more personal because all these people are kind of bits of himself, you know, because he does bring in the kind of ex-British soldier in the martyr and he, he has the ardent Republicans and the communists. And then a lot of his earlier work explores that kind of loss of his faith um, and the anger towards the church. So I think that's where that anger is is why it's so intense in particular against religious institutions and kind of bourgeoisie uh, free staters, you know, his communism and his, his like just anger at the state of the peasantry and, and how they're being treated is just so palpable in all those books. But yeah, especially the martyr. And it's set in a small little town in Kerry. So it's not set in a big city or, you know, so it's quite an interesting angle to look at both urban and rural, I think. And then he has lots of foreigners coming into this almost, as in there's the communist has come from America, but he's an Irish American. And he takes this small little place and he makes it a nexus of all of these different forces, doesn't he? Yeah, he's kind of interested in these people who get involved in conflicts that aren't their own. And I think there's a bit of that, that this kind of influence of um, the Spanish Civil War and the way, say, a lot of Irish um, kind of fighters from the Civil War kind of disillusioned would have gotten involved in that. And he kind of sees the different people coming in. And he himself would have been coming from World War One into this conflict and would have been an outsider, insider kind of thing. So I think he's interested in exploring that and how they fit into the narrative and how they're kind of misunderstandings of the social landscape kind of helps to get them all mixed up in this, uh, you know, in this conflict they don't really understand. And one of the more striking, I suppose what struck me is just the neck of it, you know? I just think the balls on him, really, because (laughs) to write what is, I mean, it's a brutal satire, you know? It's, It's so harsh, 
I did laugh at moments, but a lot of the time it's more, ooh, oh, it's quite, you kind of almost have a physical reaction. And a lot of his descriptions are of people's physical bodies as well. He's very concerned with the kind of corporeal manifestation of a personality. And one that really struck me was the figure of Miss Fitzgibbon. I mean, I actually kind of went, oh no, is this, is this Constant Mark, Constance Markiewicz? Is this like the great heroine? And after that, I was looking for everyone else who was famous from the 20s. Did contemporaries sort of think, oh, my God, this is these are real people that we all know. And was that part of the reaction to it? Yeah, I think it's definitely that Miss Fitzgibbon or Angela Fitzgibbon is is so striking. There's there's elements of Markovich and Maud Gone and even the character she played Kathleen Nihula on. She's almost vampiric. Um and it's as much about how she's built up in the men's minds as it is about her own character. Um, I'm not sure about, say, more famous characters like De Valera or Collins or, or anyone, but there's a very distinct kind of Terence McSweeney type to the character of Crosby. Um, it's almost like if Terence McSweeney was alive, what would he be like and how would he fit into this? Because he's just such a... He's such a pathetic character and it's the antithesis to the heroic kind of um, image we have of Terence Maxuini. But there would have been way more people who survived hunger strikes than than died. So these people with kind of life, he, he very physically describes the way Crosby struggles to get around and things. And you're you're kind of struck by that. And it's it's both pathetic and then really pity, pitiful as well. Um, I think that these kind of expressions wouldn't have really irked too many people because it just didn't get a chance because it was immediately censored upon publication um and they were all of his books were published outside of ireland first so it was very easy to just stop them from getting in another figure that is uh, reminiscent of somebody in particular is tyson He's kind of seems to be modelled on the Free State Brigadier Paddy Daly, um, who's implicated in many of the crimes committed in Kerry, particularly during the Civil War and the Bally CD massacre. Um, so this would have been very personally inflammatory to him and a huge blow to the government as well in their kind of state building enterprise. Um, but it just didn't get to land the blow that I feel O'Flaherty genuinely wanted. Um, I found uh, an unpublished letter that he wrote to Francis Stewart, the writer as well, where he did express his intention to write a Civil War novel. And he said to him, let's stir them up. He wanted to provoke that reaction. And I think even even if, if the censors read it or if they didn't, I think they knew just by his own character that that's what he was doing and immediately censored the book. And it's it's very hard to get secondhand. It's incredibly difficult to even get it in university libraries. Um, in NUIG, I think it's in the special collections and you have to go in and read it. So it was fantastic to see that it was republished in 2020 by Newish Gaelta because, you know, otherwise we wouldn't have this lovely book. <laughs> and it was it was the last one, wasn't it, that's been republished. So it, it kind of got forgotten about even in the republication and the rediscovery of O'Flaherty. I think they were almost waiting, I'd say. I would have waited to republish this one because I'm closer to the centenary of the Civil War anyway because uh, it just has so much more of an impact. It was just a pity that was in 2020 when we were all locked down. 
It would be very provocative to consider it in the context of the decade of centenaries, really, because that Tyson figure is clearly the he's like the heavy gang of his day, as in he goes in to rough people up and to torture them. And he is given free reign in a way, like a blind eye is turned to him by the colonels, by the men who wear all the, the badges, who are like, well, you know, it's kind of useful, but I can't really condone it. And it's a really fascinating example of how military atrocities can happen in the, the command chain and everything. Yeah, they very clearly know what he's about, you know, but they they dismiss it as something that's necessary in war times. And it's just, oh, it's very insidious. <laughs> it is. There is that amazing chapter where the colonel is trying to divert the, the parish priest from his objections to Tyson. He knows Tyson is going to kill someone. He's going to kill Crosby. And he comes storming in and then he gets slowly and very cleverly just put off track and they end up having dinner and champagne and forget about it. It's interesting to see that angle of like the parish priest, you know, often there's this kind of um, narrative that the priests are in control, but here we see the, the, the free state government kind of very cleverly maneuvering the priest as well, like out of this situation that's kind of useful to use the church when they need it. But then when they don't need that kind of authority, they'll kind of make their own. It's yeah. Very clever stuff. <laughs> very clever. And Interesting to see on a local level, instead of talking always about the bishops, who obviously get a lot more deference, you know, because they write to the top civil servants. But this is just a small little encounter in a village. And I think that's what gives it that potency, really. So I'd like to do the censorship bingo just to dive more into the content of this book, because... Like you say, I think that there was a lot in it that would have stirred any of the contemporary readers up, uh, whichever side you were on. So if we start with breasts, well, yes, it does mention Angela Fitzgibbon's boobs in a way. I have to read it out. It's so funny. Her breasts swelled slightly beneath the base of her throat, like two round blocks of pure white ivory slightly tinged with blue. <laughs> I actually had that one underlined as well. He's, he's a great man for the descriptions of breasts. I don't think he's able to describe a woman without a, a very, very, uh, I don't know, lengthy description of her breasts. <laughs> Definitely a boob man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's a man for the boobs. Yeah, so we have to take that. Um, I think that's the most obvious boob reference, but there are definitely more boobalicious moments. Oh, yes, some of the ladies who uh, work with Crosby talks about their bosoms all the time. Uh, the next one is bestiality. Now, I have to say, I don't think he accused anyone of that. No, I don't think so. No. No. Um, sex work. Yes, there is a character who's a spy double agent and who is described as starting as a prostitute almost. Yeah, Kit is kind of, she's described as not a whore, but acting like a whore. Um, but it's it, she's very much seems to be a kind of pseudo sex worker. I'm not sure if she's getting any kind of profit out of it, but there's there's a kind of hint at her being a, a sex worker and, and and using sex to get information at the very least from people. Yeah. And she did sleep with was it Tyson? There's a an actual sex scene. Yeah, Sheehan. She slept with Sheehan, which oh. is 
very weird scene, but we'll we'll get onto the other details of that too. <laughs> that is well strange, that one. <laughs> Next up, racism. Well, I mean, the N-word does appear. Mm, yes. And I think at one stage as well, Angela Fitzgibbon is described as possibly having Mongolian blood. There's some very weird racialized descriptions. Yeah. Yeah. We, we take it for that. And then there's drugs. Now, there isn't any like what we would consider drugs. But if I think the way that he talks about how alcohol is used by the soldiers suggests a kind of, you know, a use of it as a drug in wartime to enable terrible things to happen. Yeah. And he often uses whiskey interchangeably with pochine. So it's hard to tell whether they're drinking whiskey or pochine. So there's obviously a lot more effects associated with pochine as well. There's kind of a frenzy associated with the alcohol here. So I would be inclined to take it. I don't know what your standards would be. <laughs> for it. Yeah, I mean, loads of books have alcohol in them, but it tends to be more a prop. But I think in this case, it's part of the, the narrative of the war and the violence. So yeah, I think we can take that. And then politics. Well, obviously, it's just one big political rant. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, swearing. Actually, no, I didn't spot any cursing. There's there's kind of a lot of Christ and Jesus and stuff like that. But it's quite timid when it comes to swearing, to be honest. Yeah. I do like his uh, use of idiom. It's It's quite good at points. I think he catches something. Now... It looks really old fashioned now to end a sentence from a Kerry person with aru. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, people did speak like that, so it's not it's not stage Irish. There's a lot of bad cess to you as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the closest to a curse, really, I think. Yes, yeah. It's quite quite polite. So I don't think we can really take that. No. Uh then infidelity. I didn't think anyone was really married. No, I don't think anyone was married. There was the suggestion that Kit was in some kind of relationship with Charlie and then she cheats on him with Sheehan. But I don't know if you could call that infidelity because they're definitely not married. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think that counts really. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As, as a sin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then crime. Well, yeah, I think he's really interested in ideas of legality and proportionality and punishment. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's definitely at least one war crime. <laughs> yes. Oh, but, but the torture den that Tyson creates. That is insane. <laughs> with all those, what is it like sheets with drawings of tortured bodies on them? What? <laughs> it's, it's a bit much like, but it really, it really hammers home how, how evil this man is. Yeah. Yes, depraved. And then there's genitalia. Well, no, I didn't think so. Or was it very obliquely referred to in the Kit Sheehan? I'm not sure. I, I have something underlined here and I'll, I'll read it out. So I think there's something to do with the guns. There's a suggestion with the guns. Oh. So before kind of Sheehan goes to romance or slash assault Kit, he, pat, he patted the revolver on his right thigh and strode out of the room. And then there's also kind of this exchange with the other man where he says Sheehan put his head out the door and then rubbed the muzzle of his revolver against his cheek. And there's a lot of that kind of talking about guns in a very kind of phallic way, which I don't know, does that count as genitalia? There's definitely suggestiveness to it. Yes, there's that other character who's the other guy, the former British soldier out in the bog. What's his name again? Was oh, it Tracy? Tracy, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's showing her his gun and he's getting her to cock it. And, and she says she knows how to work it because she used her brothers, which is kind of a bit of incesty. <laughs> yes. And he is far too much in love with that gun. Yeah. No, he's more interested in that gun than he is in her, which does make it even more sexual in a way. Because, yeah. Yeah, no, I think we could actually take that. I, yeah, the gun stuff. There was a lot going on. Like you could really yeah. do a lot of thinking about that. I think it's worth a tick. Cool, cool. Uh, abortion, no. Nobody got pregnant. Oh, no, they did get pregnant. Sorry. But yes, no abortion. Orgies, no, I didn't think so. No. And then sexual assault. Yeah, definitely. Mm, that, that scene with Kit is, is, is very uncomfortable. In the end, she kind of kind of agrees to it. But at the start... You know, he tells her that he'll clip clip her in the jaw if she says another word and lie back there now and close your eyes. I won't be a tick. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I, I would definitely consider it assault. And, you know, even though she seems to kind of become more involved in with the end, there's definitely not consent at the start. And it's very iffy. Yes. No, it's it's quite coercive. I think that definitely counts. And then extramarital pregnancy. Well, yeah, they do refer to how the soldiers have to control themselves so that in order to preserve the reputation of the force. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, it was at some someone 
showing up with a baby in a shawl would damage their reputation. Definitely tick that. Uh, masturbation. Well, I don't know. Maybe those guns again. <laughs> I I'm not sure. I have page 42 outlined here. but well, I'll see. Oh, there's, yeah, there's a scene at the start with, um, I think it's Kate is her name, where she's gone. She's going to Brian with a poster. And she says, here's the poster, Brian, she said, striding quickly across to him and holding out a sheet of limp paper on which the printer's ink was still wet. He wasn't a minute doing it. I stood over him until he had finished. I'm all covered with ink. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I don't know. That seemed very masturbatory to me. Or maybe I'm just dirty minded. But it's, yeah, even the use of the word limp. Yeah, I think we, we can definitely go with that as an oblique reference, I think. Yeah. yeah. Why not? <laughs> and then... Sex toys. Uh, once again, the guns really seem to... You could definitely consider the, the sexualization of the gun as something significant for the men. Um, the women are considerably more reluctant, I think. They get kind of drawn in by the men, but they aren't actually fixated on the gun. Yeah, Sheehan does kind of very visibly have the gun with him when he's having sex with Kit. And, and also it mentions his holy medals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know if they count as sex toys. Maybe <laughs> a bit of a push too far, but he certainly is deriving some kind of pleasure out of that kind of juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe we're discussing whether holy medals count as a sex toy. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, yeah, that's just the sort of work we're trying to do. Um, well, no, we couldn't really count the holy medals, but I think the guns. Yeah. Yeah, I think we I think we could, you know, there is something going on there. And the next one is feminism. No. No, I really I really think it's quite hostile to that concept even. Yeah. Like there is moments when the women are kind of given a bit of a, a shine, but it's only you know, it's only in the context of showing up the men for how terrible they are. And it, there's nothing progressive about it. No. Yes, that's true. Yeah, we can't take that. And then divorce. Well, no, marriage isn't important in this story. Contraception. I didn't notice any. Um... I don't think the men are worried about that. They're more worried about the woman showing up in the shawl with the baby. <laughs> but, you know, not enough to use contraception. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody seems to be uh, worried about that. And like you say, the women aren't really proper characters. So, they don't have an interior life in the same way. Um, and the next one, menstruation. No. No. Oh, blasphemy. Well, I think there are lots of things that would offend the religious in this yes yeah yeah and even a friend's crosby throughout as well yeah crosby's bizarre religious fixation yeah this this yeah and the priest the priest is described in such grotesque terms at points that yeah i would think a lot of people would find that offensive so i think we can take that and then oral sex I don't think so. I think they, they don't. Yeah, not even the guns this time. <laughs> <laughs> At last, we can ignore the yeah. guns. <laughs> yeah. And then graphic violence. Yes, for definite. There's a lot of violence. Yeah. No problem with that. It isn't quite bally seedy, but it's close. Yeah. And then finally, queer content. I think there's a suggestion that Angela might be queer. 
Angela Fitzgibbon. So she says at one stage that um, she fled from it, kind of heterosexual love, in disgust to become a revolutionary. Each love had given way to a feeling of disgust, almost hatred for the lover, until at last the very idea of physical intimacy with men had become to repulse her. So I think there's a bit of a nod there to Markovich's sister, Eva Gore Booth, um, who was herself uh, queer uh, and wrote many, much, lots of sapphic poetry. So I, th- I think there's a hint there, a nod to Eva Gore Booth, maybe, um, that she might be queer or even asexual. She's certainly not interested in sex with men anyway. Yes. Yeah, there is something, I suppose, sexually transgressive about Angela Fitzgibbon's uh, expressions of her sexuality in lots of ways. And that's just one of them. Yeah, I think that's a good a good point. We could take that one. Mm. So what have we got? So we have one, three, four, five. It's 13. Jeez. That is huge. Yeah. And yet no swearing. <laughs> and yet no swearing or magic cocks or anything, but it's still really rude. Especially for a book from the 30s. I mean, in the 1930s, when I use the bingo card, the scores tend to be quite low and a lot of things are very oblique. But O'Flaherty is much more straightforward than a lot of authors that I've read so far. He's very direct. The Puritan that I'm reading right now, like the first scene, there's murder. It's just a very graphic murder. There's almost something kind of, I, I found when I first read The Informer anyway, kind of Tarantino-esque to the violence. It's so kind of visual. It's like a, a, a movie film. Yes. And of course, The Informer was made into film twice. So it's just perfect for it. Like, <laughs> Yes, you're right. It has that visual descriptive element, I think, that would make it attractive. And also, he does talk a lot about the landscape in a quite a visual sense. I think I got a real sense of the location of the place. So I could see that he would he would attract adaptation to film very well. I suppose just to continue now that we know quite how rude it is and the subject matter and how challenging it was and how direct he was about it. Do you think that these types of books, these angry books, that they gave him a bad reputation? Is the martyr typical of his work? Was that the sort of thing that he was writing in the 30s? When I talked about that kind of shift from his earlier work, it de- it seems to be something that he stuck with for quite a while. Um, and I think his earlier work is more kind of personal and deals with kind of personal agony, but there's more of a focus on the social and the social injustices in the world. And because he's, he's living abroad a lot and he comes back to Ireland, but he's living abroad and he's kind of seeing this from outside and his books are being published abroad and appreciated. And then they come back to Ireland and they're immediately censored. I think it made him angry, very angry at that, but also it just, furthered his drive because he was getting attention outside of Ireland. So he knew, okay, my books aren't bad. People like them, but it's just in Ireland, they don't want them. So it kind of made him even bubble up more about society and all those injustices uh, that he felt were going on, you know. And he was quite sure that he was being deliberately marginalised. Like, he seems to believe that there is a much more personal campaign out to get him. It's not just one or two books get banned. He's like, it's quite clear no one wants to stock my books anywhere, even the not banned ones. Do you think he was right about that? I think there's a bit of kind of, you know, there's a bit of his bombastic character there. But also, you know, generally as a person, he would have been kind of shunned as, you know, 
ex-religious communist who was involved in republicanism but also involved in, in World War One. He's just so many different things that people can hate that I think even if he wasn't writing, he'd still be feeling that kind of feeling ostracized. So it it only makes sense that it's just because he's writing these things and furthering his opinion all the time that he feels it more. And and you do see in some of his letters that he writes to people that he talks about kind of feeling this oppressiveness from people and 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 wanting to you know quiet down and not maybe put his opinion there because you know he's currently going through a, a time when people are disliking him. But some of it I think is you know his own imaginings i'm not sure the level of it but as as a character i think he feels it more definitely and then it fuels him even more it could be part of i suppose a lot of authors have a form of you know myth making for themselves and how they relate to everyone else in a society or in their community and i suppose it could be just part of that as well yeah Although it is true that um, Charles Eason thought his work was coarse and he didn't want to stock it, even the non-band stuff. So he was he was being excluded, I suppose, by some of the commercial operators as well. Oh, no, I definitely think that, you know, teenagers would have been discouraged from reading him at the very least. <laughs> do you think it's anything to do with his personal life and, you know, his various relationships outside of marriage and irregularities like that? Oh, yes, I think there's definitely an element to that, too, because, you know, that's that's one way to get the the Irish public and the church kind of against you as well. Um, yeah. And it did, he, he ran away with somebody's somebody's wife at one stage. Um, and I've been told by a colleague to read one of her novels because apparently she very uh, thinly veils the story of their relationship in the novel. So I'm, I'm mad to read that. Um, yeah, but no, he's just he's just a chaotic person in the best way. You know, he's so much opinions and he's he's always flopping between them. And but it makes for very interesting reading and very interesting stories because he's very much able to empathize with so many different characters. That's true. Yes. Chaotic is a good word. I think he's the sort of person that, you know, you might find a bit much in real life, but is tremendously interesting as a historical figure. Yeah, no, I wouldn't have liked to have been his friend, but I do enjoy reading him. <laughs> he wouldn't have been friends with you anyway, because you're a girl, so... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm only good for my bosom. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Teresa. That was really interesting. I really enjoyed getting the opportunity to read The Martyr. And would you recommend any of his other ones to read? Is The Martyr, is, is The Puritan also in a similar style? Yeah, the Puritan definitely. Um, it's it's fantastic. It's basically from the point of view of of one of these people who would have wanted to censor O'Flaherty. So he's kind of involved in in these you know Christian clubs that burns books and stuff, and and then he himself kind of he gets embroiled in in this fascination with a prostitute and and murders her in what he sees as a sacrifice of blood. And then he's going around for 24 hours, kind of similar to the informer in that it's a very short space of time going around Dublin. And he kind of figures out, oh, no, I am a murderer <laughs> and I am wrong. And, and you know, he's going to confession and then arguing with the priest because he's trying to say that he was possessed by a devil. And the priest was like, no, I don't think so. 
Thank you, Martin, this lady. <laughs> so it's it's fantastic and very, very angry as well. Um, but just very focused on this kind of one character. And, you know, like I was saying about the ability to empathize, it would be very easy to make a novel like that very kind of 2D. But I think he really tries to understand the character. Um, and because of his own kind of background, uh, you know, as religious, he can kind of relate to some of the kind of things and, and, and a lot of the kind of religious um, aspects of it are, are very, they feel very real, like somebody would actually believe this if they got that far down the rabbit hole. It sounds like there's quite a lot that's revelatory in a social context about O'Flaherty's work at this time. And it's yeah. it's something I think we really should read more of. And he's not super famous anymore. He's a well-known name, but like you say, The Informer is what we all read. So it was great to actually learn more about his lesser-known works. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's great to have somebody to chat to him about it. <laughs> well, I think that proves O'Flaherty was cheeky enough to offend many people. I think he was ostracised, but it's hard to know exactly why. Was it because of his sharp tongue, his political radicalisation, or his adulterous personal life? Maybe it's silly to ask about causation, because censure is an emotional overreaction. No one can say why some people are pilloried while others are ignored. Exclusion is often wildly uneven, because it's always personal. So analytical approaches don't capture that too well. But I do think anyone who called Catholic priests soutanned bullies of the Lord was going to have a hard time in Ireland. His prolific output sold very well abroad, but he was pretty much invisible at home. In 1961, someone wrote to the Irish Times talking about the books stocked in libraries in county towns. They noticed some authors were hard to get. Seldom, if ever, did I find Sean O'Fellain's stories, rarely more than one or two of the later Frank O'Connor, Liam O'Flaherty, none, Joyce Carey, none, George Moore, none, Behan, that fellow? All of the writers they mentioned had written work that was blacklisted, but some were obviously more banned than others. O'Fellain was tolerated, but O'Flaherty was persona non grata. You could argue that social censure was just as powerful as government censorship. Next time, I'm going to look at how LGBT plus identities were suppressed and marginalised. I'm going to keep you in suspense, though, because I'm not sure if I'm going to talk about Pride or Roger Casement. Till then, keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.